welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE Digital Studio production. This new blockchain series entitled Research Notes in Blockchain is hosted by Quinn Dupont, Assistant Professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. Professor Dupont is joined by Charmine Vauchenger, researcher and author of Token Economy and founder of Token Kitchen and Blockchain Hub Berlin. Charmine discusses her insights on establishing a foundation for crypto economic systems and highlights challenges faced in achieving a purpose-driven token economy. She also talks about her particular focus on sustainability-based tokens and cites how they could possibly help lower individuals' carbon footprints. So, um, thanks for, for joining us. The, the first question I've got for you is, is just a real broad one. Maybe if you can tell me a little bit about your research background, especially as it informs your approach to crypto economics. Okay, so I guess I'm I'm not a typical researcher in the sense of academic academic researcher. Um, uh, I, you know, studied and did my PhD a while ago, twenty years ago, and then um, was briefly working in academia. But uh, what I actually uh, didn't like so much was the lack of interdisciplinarity uh, in academia in general and in computer science in particular back then at at least. And so I went off, did a number of other things and um, uh, kind of a a series of coincidences led to the fact that I got the chance to set up a research institute together with my ex-professor Taudis uh, at my alma mater in Vienna at the uh, research um, at the University of uh, Economics in Vienna. And our idea or my idea back then, uh, after having uh, established the blockchain hub in Berlin, was to bring kind of this new technology um, kind of into academia because I, um, I, I had the impression that It was really necessary to bring um, well-researched or to to have a tight um, collaboration between research and development. Um, and and, And so, yeah, we had the idea three years ago to set up a research institute. Um, I called it crypto economics because back then I realized that blockchain was only kind of the backbone of this new web and it was an economic web. And kind of how we design the um, client, uh, the systems in this new Web3 um, is an economic question. It's a social question um, and uh, in addition to technical questions. So we set up this uh, interdisciplinary research institute and um, was quite a challenge, I have to say, because academia is not set out the KPIs, uh, the incentive systems in academia are not set out for interdisciplinary research at all. And um, yeah, but we had a few very interesting years. Uh, right now, I'm not working there anymore. And um, and I continued my applied research in a private research entity called Token Kitchen. Interesting. Um, maybe, maybe even just tell us a little bit about what Token Kitchen's up to these days as well. Like when I started the Blockchain Hub, that was 2015. And back then there was no information about what this new technology called blockchain was. And as I was uh, investigating this myself and um, 
kind of I was sharing my my insights uh, with the world, and and that was uh, what Blockchain Hub was about. But I I, uh, I think right around the time starting 2018, when we started the research institute in Vienna, I realized that it was actually the tokens that were the killer application of this new economic web, and blockchains were the backbone to settle all token transactions. And um, so what I'm doing now with Token Kitchen, um, and I, I wrote the book Token Economy, uh, which is kind of uh, less research-oriented and more kind of... Uh, yeah, book for the general public or a good teaching book. And um, I like with Token Kitchen, uh, I'm focusing more on the economic design patterns that need to flow in the tif- into different um, setting up different token systems. And, and the Web3 is very different in its dynamics from the Web2 and uh, stakeholder structure and dynamics and, and the, the know-how we need. Uh, kind of the, why did I call it kitchen? Because basically we need to identify recipes for these new token economies. And I wanted to do it like uh, using the word kitchen for me is de-academifying the whole thing, like kind mm. of making it more hands-on and less theoretical. And my particular focus with Token Kitchen is on purpose-driven economic system, purpose-driven tokens, tokens that steer network, social networks such as Steemit or um, kind of computing networks such as any blockchain network, right? Uh, whether it's a peer-to-peer payment network or a computing network like Ethereum. Um uh, tokens that steer economic activities and kind of incentivize the individual towards a collective good. So if you think of Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer payment network, the Bitcoin token can be seen as a purpose-driven token that steers the economic action within the network. And, and uh, taking this kind of macroeconomic perspective on these uh, socioeconomic networks that are emerging in the Web3, uh, kind of this is what we started with the... Um, um, uh, with the uh, Crypto Economics uh, Research Institute in Vienna. And now with Token Kitchen, we're trying to identify hands-on token systems. My particular focus is sustainability. Uh, so I'm focusing on CO2 tokens. How can we incentivize uh, sustainable action um, within a community? And back uh, while I was working uh, in Vienna, we started a project with the city of Vienna where the city of Vienna designed a system together with us uh, to incentivize the reduction of CO2 emission by alternative mobility behavior by not taking kind of the car. So if you could prove that you um, take uh, uh, kind of walked or you took public transport or you rode the bike and we can track this in your kind of mobile device, Um, the city of Vienna decided that that's worth something for uh, the community. Reducing CO2 has an economic worth for the community in Vienna. And they decided to incentivize one kilogram of proof, the proof of CO2 emission reduction. If you could prove that you saved one kilogram of uh, CO2 with your mobility behavior, you would get a token. And for that token, you could go to cultural activities. Now, unfortunately, this uh, this was one of the applied projects we did back, back when I was working uh, in Vienna. And uh, unfortunately, this is on hold right now because of the pandemic. <laughs> cultural mm-hmm. institutions uh, have closed. But um, 
But so the things we did on our side was to help the city identify the socioeconomic questions uh, and the techno-legal and techno-economic questions related to the design of this token system. There are many legal questions involved, but there are also many behavioral economics questions involved. So the technical question of whether to run it on a, you know, public network like Ethereum or a private Ethereum clone uh, where, where nodes are run by institutions such as universities and uh, the city, etc. Uh, these questions are uh, important, but they're not as complex as the question of how to design such a CO2 token so it can meaningfully incentivize uh, CO2 reduction within a community while preventing at the same time trying to prevent kind of fraud, right? You want to prevent people from taking their mobile phones and throwing it around their dog's neck and the dog runs around and kind of starts to uh, collect tokens, right? And um, so designing these new token systems um, um, is quite challenging from an economics perspective. And uh, this is what I'm focusing on with Token Kitchen. And as I said, the focus is uh, CO2 emission reduction for me personally. That's a really interesting perspective because when you first said CO2 uh, emission reduction, I was thinking, of course, that you'd be heading towards a uh, carbon trading um, approach, but you've done something really quite different here. So maybe let's just talk a little bit more about um, the crypto economics that are involved in this system. Okay. When you're developing the token, um, so you talked about um, sort of attack vectors, you know, the idea that somebody might commit some sort of kind of fraud with, with, you know, exactly putting it on their dog or something. What are the kind of considerations that you need to think about when you're developing this as a whole system? Exactly. Uh, That's a very good question. So what I've identified in my research is that first and foremost, you need to ask yourself, what's the purpose of the network? If we think of Bitcoin, the purpose is to have a peer-to-peer payment network. And proof of work was quite revolutionary because it came up with a mechanism to to prevent fraud. Now, if you take a different example where the purpose is different, for example, Steemit. The purpose of Steemit was to have a peer-to-peer social network without centralized kind of institutions like Facebook, Twitter, etc. So, um, and Steemit was very successful, had a lot of tractions in the first years. The problem with the Steemit, the main purpose-driven token that was supposed to incentivize action in the system, Steam Power, um, they had a three-tier token system. It's too complex to explain it now. I wrote it in my book. Uh, but uh, the main token in the end was Steam Power. And that was supposed to be a reputation token in the network. So the way it worked was when you uh, kind of contributed, when you uploaded a post that somebody else liked, both you and the person curating that post would get Steam tokens, the power. And the system was designed in a way that it would incentivize contributions by by posting and by curating. But the contributions would get incentivized as a function of the amount of steam power that you had. Uh, So if you have more steam power in the system, having more stake in the network would mean that you have more incentives uh, to contribute to the overall quality of the network. That was the assumption. But the token was designed uh, like money. So anyone can buy Steam Power and sell Steam Power. It wasn't tied to your identity. That reputation token wasn't tied to your identity. What happened because of that um, was that because it wasn't tied to your identity, you could basically buy reputation with money you had. And if you had more money, external money or internal money, 
um, you your vote would be worth more because the amount of tokens you get would get rewarded was a function of the person uh, curating your post. So if somebody with a lot of steam power would like your post, you would get more po tokens, proportionally more tokens than somebody with less steam power. Um, now, I would say uh, one of the one of the things that happened is that over time, the late movers in the network, uh, uh, late adopters in the network, they didn't uh, have a chance of making real money because the income disparity within the networks uh, was very big, like less than 10% of the token holders had 90% of the Steamy tokens, which meant that basically newcomers had no chance of making meaningful money in the network. Um, for a while, uh, in 2016-17, I knew two people who could pay part of their rent by contributing with posts, but, uh, uh, but they couldn't do that anymore because the income disparities grew. And uh, so what we learned from Steemit, while Steemit as a use case um, was a very, a, one of the greatest use cases, uh, having a decentralized social network that incentivizes for you for network action is great, but you cannot tie this uh, kind of, kind of uh, you cannot create it like money. Um, and the initial creators of uh, Steemit, they come from finance. Their assumption was that people would have the long-term benefits of the network in mind. But what really happened was that people would transfer their tokens to bots, voting bots that would optimize um, kind of uh, voting power um, uh, to optimize the outcome. And in the end, the posts that got most um, uploads would be kind of memes. So instead of having quality content, um, the, the network was less and less used. So what we can see here is that uh, we need a great deal of behavioral economics um, and, and game theory in the mechanism design of to these token systems. And uh, I think we're at the very beginning of starting to design these token systems. That's such an interesting case study. I was familiar with Steemit, but I didn't know the, the details in the background there. Um, so it's ironic that on your assessment, the problem with Steemit was this interest in making it financial, as of making a, a money backing, um, which opened up a bunch of opportunities for uh, activities that weren't beneficial for the broader network how, how would how would one go about defending this what would be some of these um behavioral economics or crypto economic um kind of ideas that might help make a more robust version of this first of all we need to start by defining like properties of tokens this is uh one th a thing that I, I we didn't do that in the crypto economics the foundations paper uh, I did this in my book, though. I have this chapter on uh, what a token is and the properties tokens can have. And I will focus on, on this uh, topic in my next book. Um, so uh, tokens can have different properties. One of it is fungibility. And, um, um, and whether a token is kind of the, the unique properties a token can have. And one uh, kind of uh, attribute could be um, uh, tying a token to your identity, right? Or uh, giving the token limited fungibility. Tokens are programmable money 
but we have to redefine money because uh, when we created money or invented money in the analog world, um, it was really hard to uh, give money multiple attributes. But in uh, in a token contract with a simple smart contract, you can add a number of attributes. And what is uh, like what we're seeing now with this NFT craze um, in uh, happening around us, people now think like mass media now is is reducing NFTs to art tokens. And this is not true. NFTs are anything that have uh, more uh, attributes than simple money. And Bitcoin was designed as simple money. And the first blockchain tokens, they're um, kind of money-like. This is why we call them cryptocurrencies, uh, because they don't have more complicated attributes. But if I, for example, identify like and design a token to, for example, have limited transferability, this is what we did in the use case of, of the Vienna token. Uh, one of the things uh, uh, we decided with the city of Vienna and with a bunch of lawyers, for multiple reasons, we decided to have uh, no transferability, that CO2 token or the tokens that you could collect in the, in the Vienna system uh, wouldn't be transferable. So only you can spend those tokens and you can only, uh, it was designed that you could only collect six tokens, would have to spend them before you could collect more tokens. Why? A, because of tying it to your identity and not making it transferable means that you don't, uh, you're not classified as money, right? Uh, the city of Vienna would have had a much bigger problem in launching this new system. Um, uh, if they would have created a parallel currency um, uh, in uh, in the legal sense, right? So this was one of the reasons to have limited uh, or tied to your identity. The limited transferability had liability issues because um, um, the, the city of Vienna wanted to avoid that, uh, you know, you could collect a lot of tokens and then um, um, uh, maybe claim them in 20 years. So there was an expiry date, uh, um, connected to the tokens, or there was a question of uh, connecting an expiry date to the token, but uh, also in limiting the amount of tokens that you can collect. The, so very often it's, um, so you have to, depending on what the purpose of the token is and who you're designing the token kind of system for and what the legal uh, implications of uh, kind of also the legal framework um, um, is, you uh, these factors, all these factors would determine your token design from a, a legal factors, but then also from a behavioral uh, factors. Uh, yeah. So there is a myriad of factors that you need to take in my, in, into account when designing a token system. And these factors depend on geographical locality, the type of token that you're, um, that you're designing, so there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. This is what I'm trying to say. So what we're trying to do in our research with Token Kitchen is to define interaction patterns, uh, common patterns for social media tokens, common patterns for CO2 tokens, et cetera, et cetera. We're still in a very, very early stages of this new token economy, and we don't know what these common patterns are. Yeah, it's very interesting. I like this idea of patterns. And as you're very clearly aligning this with uh, through a kitchen metaphor with recipes, because I think this has been a challenge with uh, just maybe, uh, I don't know, more generally, smart contracts are 
I get the sense that there's a lot of work we need to do to understand how to develop them safely and um, and, and, and transparently such that people can deploy smart contracts that have um, sort of known legal ramifications and known technical ramifications. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're driving towards. Yeah, it's technical, legal, but it's economic. Why are we creating token systems? Because we want people like all over the world to interact with each other, right? We want uh, people to have a meaningful social network where we can ideally prevent fake news, or we can uh, ideally incentivize people for quality contributions uh, in the network. Now, quality contribution probably is a subjective. Uh, why is it uh, kind of so hard to create reputation systems? Um, because uh, in social networks, uh, reputation can be very subjective. What is quality content to someone uh, like me might be not so much quality to you because our tastes differ or our interests differ, etc. Uh, or we have a generational gap. Um, and um, so uh, this is often a question of behavioral economics and, and social science, uh, economics and social science, or as part of social science, um, uh, much more than a um, technical question. So on a technical question, we uh, ask ourselves, if we look at token engineering, and this is one of the things I wrote in my book, from my perspective, I identified four uh, pillars of token engineering. One is the most obvious is a, a technical engineering. It's like, which uh, kind of uh, DLT do I use? Which, which uh, blockchain network or distributed ledger system do I want to use? Um, and uh, kind of uh, how do I, come from, a, from a technical point of view, uh, which token standard do I use? Do I need to create a new standard, etc.? What are the attributes? Uh, uh, and here, probably the most important from a technical perspective, the most important question are security, um, uh, scalability, privacy. And here you need to make sure that you also are compliant. Very many use cases, for example, in the financial industries, but also in real estate, etc., are highly regulated industries. So you can't just do it. Um, designing a token system for DeFi is a very different thing than designing Gitcoin, right? Uh, maybe. Um, or uh, designing a social network because um, um, a regulatory framework uh, is different. So um, we have the technical engineering. Then we have legal engineering. And technical engineering and legal engineering needs to go hand in hand because whatever you design on a technical system needs to be probably legally compliant uh, if you want to attract mass markets. Today, a lot of use cases that could be are technically feasible, but they're legally not compliant, or it's unclear what the regulatory... So we have to make the regulatory framework compliant, or we have to make the technical uh, kind of design of the token system compliant with the regulatory framework. So this is where we see that lawyers and software developers need to work hand in hand much more than before even. Uh, but then we have the economic questions and economics. It's like a set of different economic questions of uh, from microeconomics to macroeconomics to behavioral economics uh, to e ecological economics, etc., etc. So 
Um, it's very funny because we, we did a token project with a blockchain network, quite a famous one. It's, it's uh, signed an NDA, so I can't say what it was. Um, and they came to us uh, back then when we were at the university and they wanted to kind of design their monetary policy of their blockchain network. So um, they wanted to do it fast because they had an upcoming kind of token sale <laughs> and um, they mixed up questions of microeconomics and macroeconomics. And then uh, we did the project, and uh, at least in the first phase. And one of the questions they asked us after we did the first, uh, finished the first uh, project phase was uh, that they did, realized that they need to hire an economist now. Now, mind, at that time, this block, blockchain project, they had 200 people working for them, right? So they, uh, they wrote a job description for an economist sent it to us and asked us what we thought of it, uh, or one of my colleagues. And he came to me and he said, Sherman, um, they, they sent me this job description and basically they're looking for eight people in one. And uh, it's not like one economist that can resolve this. It's like you need a set of different economists with different backgrounds, right? Um, it's like, you know, an IT person is not a software developer is not a software developer. You have different, you know, along the software stack, you're a full stack developer or only a front end developer. And it's the same with economics. We have various schools of economics. We have various perspectives of designing economic systems. And we have the micro level, the macro level, the meso level. We have have the behavioral, you know, and then we have the game theory. There are so many different perspectives. So basically what we answered them is what you're looking for doesn't exist. That person does not exist. Um, you would need to hire eight people probably or 10 people, but they only hired one, right? Um, so they have uh, 100 software developers and then a few admin people and, and, and uh, marketing people, etc., and then they hire one economist. And I think we need to understand that what blockchain networks are and what this new Web3 is, it's, uh, it allows us to have social economic interaction patterns and that uh, kind of by, by designing purpose-driven tokens that steer economic systems, socioeconomic systems, that incentivize individual behavior towards a collective goal, right? Um, we need complex economics, economic thought uh, um, going into the design patterns of the system. So I think what we need to understand from a self software development point of view is that we need, um, in, in Silicon Valley used to say, uh, when you get funding, you need to allocate 50% to software development and 50% to marketing. So what I'm saying is that when you get funding now, you probably need a third for software development a third for marketing if you want to get a lot of traction, but a third for a set of economists and lawyers um, um, to help you design those token systems. Because as we, when we were designing the Vienna token, we didn't have one lawyer. Uh, we had working groups with 20 lawyers in the room from different uh, research backgrounds. A tax lawyer only has a tax per perspective or of what the ta tax implications of a CO2 token are. But then you have kind of the capital market implications, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the privacy implications. So you need a set of different lawyers with all those different perspectives. Tying this back into why we started the Research Institute of Crypto Economics or for Crypto Economics uh, back in 2018 was back then I already saw that the 
questions that we need to ask ourselves when designing um, blockchain networks and the applications running on top of them. We need uh, an interdisciplinary set of know-how that goes into designing these token systems. And I'm sure that uh, over time, over the next years, we will... Um, we will identify these common interaction patterns depending on the goal of your system. Uh, and we might reduce the workforce or research force we need um, for designing those token systems. But it is very much an interdisciplinary approach. And um, I think what the Web 1 and 2 lacked because it was steered out of Silicon Valley, it had this very get you done attitude of programming a front end that uh, uh, that was usable um, and functional and could get very fast return on investment. Um, and uh, while some people early on, they already said that, you know, privacy would be an issue and, you know, uh, the data economy would be an issue. Um, but uh, most people started to understand the implications around privacy and who owns our data uh, after the big scandals of Cambridge Analytica, etc. But the problem is that once you have this big machinery like a social network, Facebook, uh, that is listed uh, on a stock exchange, it's really hard to change their um, value proposition. Uh, if it's based on data and and there is no transparency of what happens in our data in the Web 2. And, and I think uh, we're seeing that in the Web 3, because it's economic systems, um, it is probably much more important to ask the more difficult questions, um, the long-term implications of like protocol design and token system design, um, uh, because once we have bias in the protocol, it's hard to get it out of the system um, because you need a hard fork for that, right? <laughs> you need uh, to have consensus of all network actors. And that is hard to get. And we can see this from the Bitcoin um, ecosystem. We can see this in the Ethereum ecosystem. And we can definitely see it in this use case of Steemit because it went through a kind of... Uh, uh, the network split up into Steemit and now the Hive network. Very interesting example of the challenges of getting this multi-interdisciplinary project off the ground. This is really, I, I agree with you, this is the challenge that uh, people in the blockchain space really need to think hard about. I just want to go back a little bit, though, to... You mentioned uh, micro, uh, meso, and macro economics, mm -hmm. and one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about you, particularly your Foundations of Crypt Crypto Economic Systems um, article, was that you talk about how this analysis across these multiple scales gives insight into emergent properties, and I'm just wondering if you say a little bit more about the, I guess it's the analytical challenges of understanding these emergent properties. Yes. So what does emerging properties mean for maybe not non-CPS people? Um, mm -hmm. So basically, let's, let's stick to like a real life example, right? So the Bitcoin network is based on a steered by a protocol design. The Bitcoin protocol was designed based on certain game theoretical assumptions and it resolved the problem of how to steer a peer-to-peer -peer network in an attack-resistant way. Um, and um, 
Now, the protocol was designed and it worked very well for a while. <laughs> but then we realized that, oh, actually people, a lot of people, much more than maybe the initial designers of the th system thought, uh, Satoshi, whoever it was, um, thought, um, all of a sudden there was a scalability problem in the net uh, blockchain network, in the Bitcoin network. So uh, as you might remember, Uh, for those who uh, followed the discussions, there was a long debate over years within the kind of developer community of how to resolve the scalability problem, the so-called block size debate. This block size debate uh, had different kind of, and there were uh, different ringleaders with different opinions of how to, um, or the approaches of uh, how to resolve kind of the scalability problem. And without deep diving into the technical questions of, uh, of what was discussed, in the end, you had people, a community that were using, that were designing and using the system who had an, uh, different um, interests and opinions about um, uh, pr probably different interests because uh, miners had their uh, interest in keeping their um, incentive reward structure high, <laughs> while users wanted to have lower fees, while developers uh, might have had different their own interests depending on whether they had tokens in the system or not, or what kind of political stance they had within the system, etc. Um, and then you had different proposals. And it... Nothing really happened for years because we uh, need uh, the majority of the network to agree on how to upgrade the system. And this is the emergence that we try to describe, is that as time evolves, um, uh, the system uh, evolves into a direction that might have not been foreseeable. Um, uh, and especially in complex systems, you never know, you know, how one attribute can determine the outcome of the whole system. So uh, as this, this uh, Bitcoin system evolved over time, it became necessary to upgrade it. But then people have different opinions, uh, uh, were not um, on the same page. And now the problem was that, uh, yes, you can fork the system, but by making splitting the network in two halves, uh, you also make the network less safe. So it took a while until kind of uh, a proposal upgrade went through. And when it did, uh, a lot, it also made the network split into several sub kind of uh, uh, forked change, uh, uh, chains of people who had different opinions. And so this governance of these crypto economic systems is partially, partly automated. But then as the system evolves over time, there is this emergence that we need to upgrade these systems and how we upgrade it and, and uh, who decides on that and who writes the code and when it is put actually into uh, code. And then we have this feedback loop of uh, governance design of these systems. Right. Yeah. Governance is clearly very important. Um, in your paper, you talk a little bit about the need for polycentric governance and, and even with uh, purpose-driven tokens, that there might be no one social optimal. Is this something you've you found already in, in some of the um, real live ex uh, work you've been doing um, in, in Vienna there? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, uh, what is social optimal, right? Um, people with different desires and different um, political beliefs and uh, different kind of uh, utility functions, we would say from uh, an economics point of view, 
uh, come together, there, what is the social optimal? That's, that's a philosophical question. This is why we have so, so many different schools of economics, right? Um, uh, mainstream economics is still based on neoclassical economics that assumes that we as humans try to maximize and that's the, uh, the sole motivator, <laughs> the sole thing that max, uh, motivates us is maximizing uh, uh, our economic function or um, our income. Uh, but behavioral economics has shown that this is not true. And we have various schools. One of the things we wrote in our Foundations of Crypto Economics uh, paper, yeah, the evolution of corporations perspective is that while um, the proof of work uh, is built on game theoretical mechanisms or, or assumptions from uh, very old uh, uh, game theoretical assumptions uh, of the, let's say, 50s or 60s, where we assumed that the only uh, goal of, of human beings are to maximize um, their income. But if we look at behavioral economics and behavioral game theory, we know that there are so many other um, cooperative um, um, behaviors that people have and that Profit maximizing, individual profit maximization is only one of many behaviors of human being. So what we would need to include in designing crypto economic networks, including blockchain networks, uh, would be um, um, understanding that uh, people have other motivations uh, other than uh, maximizing um, their bottom line. And maybe a research question could be, is proof of work so expensive and so also uh, energy consumption, uh, en uh, kind of expensive in energy consumption because it's based on profit, the assumption of profit maximization? And what would happen if we would extend proof of work uh, or uh, create a new uh, game theoretical mechanism that would account for other things that motivate uh, human behavior? That would be a very interesting research question. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that we've spoken a lot here about ways of controlling people, behavioral economics, um, mechanisms that are designed to uh, reinforce and prohibit certain kinds of uh, behaviors. But then there's also an interesting and I, I think largely un underexplored avenue looking at new social dynamics. And, and in your paper, you talk about computational social science. That's a very good, a timely question, because I wanted to refer to this now. I mean, if you think about uh, blockchain networks, uh, um, they're uh, crypto economic systems, and they are uh, data-driven economies. So for what was really hard for me is that I could get so little enthusiasm of our researchers, economics researchers on this topic, uh, probably maybe because they were overwhelmed with their day-to-day -day research and teaching and activities, etc. cetera. Uh, but basically, uh, blockchain networks and the applications that build on top of them are data-driven economic systems. So we can do a bunch of data science on um, on the real-time data science on what is happening in this economic system and have real-time steering of these, economic, of these economic systems. If you think of our current economy, like our real economies, national economies, and how they're being steered, they're being steered on old data. That data can be a year old. If it's 
if it's new, it's only a year old, or census data that is collected once every 10 years. This is crazy. We live in the computer age already. Yet the policy design of our economic systems in a nation, on a nation state level is done based on old data. Now, in the internet, and especially in the Web3, we have real-time public data on all economic activities in the network. Now, this public data can be shielded or not shielded, you know, um, but we can do, even if we use uh, kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, we could use privacy-preserving, kind of multi-party computation stuff, uh, but still do big data um, on privacy-preserving um, networks. Uh, but we can, we can, if you think of the amount of data that we have on every single uh, economic activity that happens within a Bitcoin network or within a social network such as the Steemit network, it's not data that is behind the walled garden uh, of the Facebook servers, right? It's public data. So all the data in the Steemit network is public, which is why many decentralized applications started to emerge that were feeding the Steemit ecosystem, which was why the Steemit ecosystem was very, very successful um, um, before it failed because of its poor economic design or, you know, incentive design of its reputation token. But um, so uh, the what we can do in these data-driven economies, how we can steer these economies in real time, maybe also computer-aided with, with uh, machine learning algorithms aiding us in the steering of these systems. This, this opens a new era of kind of economic design. Um, and the challenge right now that we have is that those who understand blockchain networks from a com computer science perspective, probably all the listeners uh, of your podcast now, usually don't have economics know-how. And economics people don't have enough or any computer science know-how. They're very, very, the overlap of people who are economists who have computer science know-how and vice versa is very low. So what we try to do, in, and uh, one of the researchers that I very, uh, really appreciate is uh, Jamshid uh, Shorish, who was, uh, a, he's an economist that has been very early on since actually, I think, 20 years, uh, focusing on computational social science. Um, uh, but you know, he's an outlier. He was an outlier 20 years ago, I guess, or even 10 years ago. And unfortunately, he still is an outlier now. So what, what we need to generate uh, is um, um, a cl new class of researchers on the intersection of economics and computer science, but also on the intersection of the law and computer science. So I'm, this is why I'm really happy that you invited us to speak, because yeah, unless what, we don't have this intersection, we will never have meaningful, you know, uh, computational social science. Um, and uh, we really hoped, and, and this is why we put so much, um, uh, Michael and I, effort into this paper, that we could create an understanding for the magnitude of this new generation internet that is ahead of us and this is why we called it crypto economics combination of cryptography which is computer science and economics um yeah thank you for listening to our interview with shermin boshenger to learn more about the ieee blockchain initiative 
please visit our web portal at blockchain.ieee.org.